The title of this evening's talk is Compassion, the Heartbeat of the the Buddhist Teaching. And beginning uh, with some words from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, each other's human plight. There's an image in Tibetan Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each hand that's reaching out, a thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world and a thousand arms reaching out to help. A number of years ago now, I attended uh, a retreat with the venerable Vietnamese Vietnamese monk and venerable teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. And there were about 400 adults there and 30 children. And the children were off each day having their own retreat. But every morning they would come uh, to do a show-and-tell for all of the adults before we began our retreat day. Each morning they stood up in front of us and in various ways they would share with us uh, what they'd been doing and learning uh, during the previous day. One morning all 30 children of the 30 children, all of them came in to the meditation tent and they stood in a a long line silently facing the 400 adults. And then each child stretched out both arms to their sides, up and out, uh, with their hands facing us. And in the palm of each child's hand was an eye painted in the in that in each palm and then one little boy uh, walked up onto the platform where the uh, venerable Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and he painted an eye in the palm of one of Thai's hands and that was the whole of their presentation that morning it was very touching and very inspiring and very beautiful So, compassion, karuna in Pali, what is it experientially? About 51 years ago now, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. And holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness between us as he lay open-eyed and quite relaxed and contented in my arms and my eyes looking deeply into his face 
with a kind of wonderment and curiosity. And suddenly I felt my heart tremble. The vibration permeating my chest and my heart center and then moving through my whole body and mind. A feeling of connection, an intimacy with him and with life as a whole, so to say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a very deep sense that this tiny being, this tiny new being, would experience many difficult things in his life. Difficult situations and many painful bodily and mental experiences within himself. A wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me in the midst of those moments of sweetness and beauty. And and some tears came as this was occurring. But not the aching tears of the sadness that can come with feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion. That, yes, this is how it is. This is how it is for all of us. And for him as well. That particular morning's experience has returned many, many times. And in many ways, as both a teaching and as a practice for me within the enormous breadth of gratitude that living life immersed in the Dhamma brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering, ours or that of another being. Compassion is the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. It's one of the two wings with which we learn to fly free. The wing of wisdom, of deeply understanding the not-self nature of all things, and the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings that comes through a deep understanding of dukkha, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause and knowing the way of its end. Because meditation practice has the power to clear away, purify mental obscurations, purify the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart and bind the mind. Practice actually makes us more keenly aware and more sensitive to the suffering in this world. How can we bring our deepening sensitivity, our new awareness, if you will, of dukkha into our practice, into this path of liberation. 
Our practice must be grounded in a non-judgmental acceptance, which is the heart of metta. It's what metta offers us. And it also must be grounded in concentration, mindfulness, and investigation. Meaning a clear, focused mindfulness and the discrimination of states of body, mind, and heart. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. A mind a heart steeped in metta is what allows for the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along our way of this training is intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and clearly see the difficult. To compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in life. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, a place within us of great strength. Tenderness, openness, and strength the capacity to stay present in relationship to whatever is happening within our own body-mind continuum and in relationship to whatever is going on around us and not feel overwhelmed by any of it. And so we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering when it shows up in our field of experience. Most of us are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease under the rug, hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourselves away by shutting off, going to sleep, distracting ourselves, or possibly through ignoring or trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel the pain of others in the world and so that we don't see and feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with and open to the pain, that it will touch us too deeply and cause us more discomfort, more anguish, and maybe even unbearable pain. The aim of karuna, compassion practice, is to move towards turning our developing capacity for heartful, unconditional acceptance, which is metta, to gently turn the heart, the mind, specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourself or others. And then with courage, 
and understanding, open to and move towards the alleviation of suffering. Through the purification of the mind that practice affords us, over time we do learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering, but rather to begin to feel and know an unobstructed strength, care, courage, and understanding, which is what gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing concentration, mindful awareness and investigation, a whole new realm of choices and insights and responses become available to us. We meet and accept what is, which is the essence of mindfulness based in metta. And then, in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion, or boundless compassion, as it's often called, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, ourself very much included, and in our mind not make others or ourself more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained nor reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear, the anger, the judgment, the resentment and disappointment, grief or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality, which Chogyan Trumpa described as a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitation. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other. To dissolve this separation in the direct experience of our body, heart, and mind in an open-hearted and yet in an impersonal, non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this painful separation, or as it's sometimes called, this duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or in the face of our own pain and suffering, so that we're honestly and 
truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, jealousy, greed, or checking out, dissociating from the mental or physical discomfort. Usually we think of mental states or emotional states as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that most important and helpful and a true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation between reaction and response. Reaction, or breaking that word down, reaction, is always based on the past. On past conditioned patterns that are rooted in an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, or mine. So consequently, they aren't connected to, they don't see, they don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction or reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies our habitual thoughts, actions, and self-identification as this is who I am and this is who you are. Compassion, on the other hand, is a response, not a reaction, not a reaction. There's a story about Zen master Ryokan, whose brother had invited him to visit his house and to speak to his delinquent son. And Ryokan went, but he never said any words of admonishment to the boy. He stayed overnight, and as he prepared to leave early the next morning, um, his wayward son was sitting on the ground uh, helping Ryokan to lace up his straw sandals. And the boy felt a drop of warm water touch his hand. And he glanced up. And he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home and he was told that his nephew, soon after this visit, changed for the better. Compassion training, the practice and the unfolding of karuna, it's challenging. It's often difficult. It means we take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing and one thing only suffering, and the end of suffering. And as all of us know by now, the Buddha wasn't about to go on to tell us the best way to suffer. We're all very well practiced in this. Nor was he recommending suffering. 
He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish, are all intrinsic to our human condition. Or more accurately, these states are states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up. Until we wake up to the true nature of life. What he was doing was pointing out the truth of its existence, the existence of dukkha. And that looking directly, deeply, and honestly at the reality of suffering in our lives is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it, which in turn leads to the transformation and relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. Trying to control, trying to cling on to or push away or avoid events or any moments of this constantly changing life with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practiced, the particular objects that come into awareness, they don't really change very much. Basically, we keep attending to the same body-mind objects. It's how we experience, see, and know particular objects. It's the relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something kind of astonishing and fortunate about suffering itself. That it itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As we begin to see clearly and as we continue to climb the mountain of metta and compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock of our unskillful, cherished habits and identities roll to the bottom, we're less and less often habitually blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of a suffering relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, compassion, mindful awareness, concentration, and wisdom begin to really take root and grow. Our heart opens. We really, truly are beginning to awaken. A while ago, I received a a letter from a dear friend of mine. I'd like to share a, a little bit of this letter. 
just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me for the past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion. Compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity. I realize that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding, and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings but feel very clear about my course of action. Life can be so rich and challenging in all its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cover uh, cultivate compassion, where does this come from? The seeds of compassion within each of us have been planted many times. Every time we've experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with, when we've been sick or hurt physically or when we've been in some emotional pain. The seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. These moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion, and plant the seed of this energy in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we in turn plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna in our own heart is watered and fertilized and grows. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react both internally and outwardly to a difficult or painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And 
Sometimes the learning curve can be very steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourself asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda, the agenda that props up the veil of subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality that we've been living behind maybe forever. These learning curves can come our way every once in a while, that do come our way every once in a while, hold the possibility for us to recognize and to let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself. Looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear and true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission, as I mentioned in the Metta talk. It's kind of a circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission. We give the transmission out to others, and also again to ourselves, through acts of compassion. And on and on it goes the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and for many people, an amazing and inspiring contemporary embodiment and transmission or transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. There's a video uh, about her life and her work, some of you may have seen it. And there's a short scene in this video where she stops by the bed of a man who had just been brought in off the street, who's uh, extremely emaciated and sick. And she gets down, he's really just on a mat on the floor is what the bed is. And she gets down very close to him and looking directly into his eyes and just simply lays her hand over his heart. And he looks very directly back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love. A few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. With the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face 
whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it or pretending that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this. I can't be near it. I can't bear this feeling. And it's very important, really so important, that when this comes up, this feeling of, I can't stand this, I can't bear it, I can't bear this feeling, when this comes up in the mind, when this comes up in the heart, it's really important to connect to the aversion, the feeling with mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta. Meeting and receiving the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted mindfulness. This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now for me. This is fear. This is grief. This is anger. This is judgment. This is what's happening in this moment. This is how it is. It's so very important to recognize our limits without self-judgment however they might show up in the process of cultivating compassion. Compassion is never developed through force. It's appropriate and natural to back off from painful experience at times in our life as a whole and in our practice. This, in fact, is metta and karuna itself. In relationship to this, I'd like to read um, a piece from a book. Called an inspired, an interrupted life. Which is a diary that was written. between 1941 and 1943 by a woman named Eddie Hillisom. Eddie was a 27-year-old Dutch-Jewish woman who in the midst of the Second World War lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam and then in very bad health in the Westerbrook concentration camp and then very briefly in Auschwitz where she was exterminated on November 30th, 1943. Amazingly, these years of great suffering through Europe were, for Eddie, a time of enormous personal growth and, paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation for her. In the midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe, we could say that Eddie wrote the counter scenario. Her diary is really an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense 
extreme difficulty. And this is from Eddie. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, the sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast, empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point, Eddie wrote, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she would not return from the camps. And so she asked uh, a friend to keep her diaries. She knew that she wanted to leave some trace behind uh, to share the solutions that she'd found for her life. And this is from the last entry in her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world, to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And she ends with, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. Survivors from the camp have confirmed that Eddie was a luminous and compassionate personality to the very last. It's important to stay mindful in the moving away from and the coming close to. The opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental and situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give heartful mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object will also change. 
we need to learn to befriend ourselves, to come close and see how it is, to see how it really is. It might be a really strong and intense energy, but it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the great intimacy of our practice to see how it really is? Can we some come so close, grounded in the heart of connection and accept, acceptance and with a growing compassion? And see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience, see them truly in themselves and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a very dear friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually don't, we usually do give them our attention and we give them our care in some way. We usually don't uh, tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling or tell them to get away from us in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourselves, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a connection with all beings. We come to really know that the pain in our heart, the ache in our back, essentially is not different from the pain in the heart or the back of any other being anywhere in the world. For most of us, our hand quite naturally and spontaneously might reach out to soothe the ache in our own foot, for instance, or our back, or our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another? in this very same, same simple and natural way. Essentially this is due to a deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of this fixed idea Spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall into the range of who we think of as mine. And there may be some indifference or even maybe a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens. There's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and understanding grows, connection and empathy blossom. And our sense of being a closed cell dissolves. It's not that I or me vanish into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Not at all. Instead, we discover that we're truly and simply a cell that forms part of the, to quote Stephen Batchelor, 
interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. As wisdom blossoms, our way of being in and with conventional reality is transformed. We come to know experientially that I, or the sense of I, actually only only exists in relationship to you. I, me, isn't eliminated. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. I, me, you, them, us, etc. have never and will never exist in isolation. Have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notion of me and you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you, begin to dissolve with the blossoming of unconditional acceptance, metta, and karuna, compassion. And in the relationship to the way that we go about our life, how we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally, more and more often. We begin to understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And from the 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy. This relating to others and to ourself with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart as we have many old and seemingly new personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there is some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, 
are what is called the near enemy or what looks like, what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true open-hearted caring presence. Pity is actually a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a, a contraction away from, a, with, a withdrawal, if we really look carefully. When we pity, there's a subtle or maybe not so subtle wanting it to be different. And also there may be some feeling of, well, I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. So a kind of subtle flavor or taste of arrogance that's a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy or unwholesome, the unwholesome component of grief is actually fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy and it can lead one into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and lost in the downward spiral of a strong and deep contraction, which if we really clearly see it, we find that it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. This and this fixation can often be a very strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity in ourself for ourself, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of an unhealthy grief, in those moments actually, we're not experiencing any true caring or kindness or compassion for ourselves. But really rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling. That heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves. That poor me with a capital M-E. And in this place, there's not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful awareness that's rooted in metta, can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind? Letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification, myself as a pitiable pitiful person, but rather the possibility of, here's pity, here's grief, this is what's arising. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am, but it's come up. How is it? How is it in this moment?
metta, mindfulness, and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening. And in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment and in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the first Bearing Witness Retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman Roshi has organized the first Bearing Witness retreat. As we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh, gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the so-called prisoners. The shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes clothes and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness, as it's a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to whatever this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mane Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. a deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of connection, disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be 
living in and living with in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion. Not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life and from ourselves. And the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others has happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days at Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all the opportunities and blessings that have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, uh, this uh, piece from my diary was put into a newsletter that the <clears throat> Taos uh, New Mexico Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to share a response that I received from an Israeli Dhamma student uh, who at that time was also very involved in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace initiative work. Thank you for the newsletter you sent to me. I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we are facing such difficulties. Remember, this was in 1996. I was deeply touched reading your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They they and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train that had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again and I had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop and the policeman asked everyone to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. 
Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up from my dream. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect to what you experienced. I felt it is very important for me to be able to make such a transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands and a flag in the Book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life, have no meaning for him. I began to cry, and then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. I wanted to share this with you, and again, to thank you. In some words from Vimala Thakkar, I had quoted something, something from her uh, a week or two ago. She was an Indian uh, a spiritual teacher, master, who was a longtime student of Krishnamurti's. And she's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And this is from her. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from the not me. That divisions among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? And then she goes on. The only salvation for humankind appears to be in a spiritual revolution of the individual. As the source of all evil is in the very substance of our consciousness, we will have to deal with it. Everything that has been transmitted to our mind through centuries will have to be completely discarded. The moment of a million yesterdays is not easy to overcome or to discard if we try to tackle it in a casual way, or if we don't touch it at all. So these two wings of awakening, 
with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom that comes through our experiential insight into the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self-nature of all conditioned things. And the other wing being unconditional compassion. Our heartfelt connection to beings and our way of being in this world that ensues from this. And reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers all the way back to the Buddha, this heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the Buddha's, for the wing of the Buddha's great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. And I always find it really very interesting, helpful, and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself, his speaking about his own humanness, which he actually even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In one of his discourses that's uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya, we find him with a small group of uh, bhikkhus, uh, monks, sharing with them what his thoughts were uh, very soon after uh, his awakening. And this is from the Buddha. This dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the dhamma, others would not understand me and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. And then uh, he tells his monks soon after this that a certain Brahmin came to him and pleaded. And this is the Brahmin speaking. The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, Let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on with his monks and says, Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to to, to teach and hard to teach. 
And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, open for them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma subtle and sublime. So this wing of unconditional compassion. Profound and subtle in itself. And obviously also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and so clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I think may be helpful in understanding this is this. To know not-self means to know directly and clearly that life is only in the immediate presence of just what is being experienced. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever truly know. In closing the talk with uh, a piece from uh, a former student of mine who was writing a book, never finished it. Uh, He was a very dedicated Dhamma student. He died of AIDS-related complications, and I did mention him, actually, in a previous Dhamma talk during this retreat. This is from the book that he never finished. My first eight-day Vipassana retreat Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. On the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache rips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternate with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of the hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of the two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, All my bodily pain is gone. 
Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second day, I marvel that I'm attending all the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddha's compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions about Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Are metta and karuna better than vipassana? Is practice, in practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, where do they come from? Where do they go? We're creating an energy of trust. My heart opens to all of the retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us, cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how Vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And Vipassana practice is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. The last full day of the retreat, doing a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center. My heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life. The suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not held onto. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.